and welcome everybody. I'm your host, Harry Sheridan, and this is Uncanny Exposition, a podcast dedicated to exploring the decades-long history of the strangest superheroes of all, the X-Men. Since this is the very first episode of Uncanny Exposition, it'd make sense for us to start this oral history of the X-Men from the beginning. In a sense, we will be. While the topic of today's episode is indeed X-Men number one, we won't actually be talking about the comic that kicked it all off in 1963. Rather, we'll be talking about the second X-Men number one, which was published in 1991. A comic that served as both the end of one era and the beginning of another, X-Men number one is, to this day, the single highest selling American comic book of all time with a monumental 8.1 million copies sold. No single issue has come anywhere close to hitting those numbers since, and with a good reason. While 1991's X-Men number one may be the highest selling comic of all time, it's also partially responsible for the industry's catastrophic crash in the mid-90s. But more on that soon enough. Let's get into it. written by Chris Claremont and penciled by Jim Lee, with Scott Williams on inks, Tom Borzakowski on lettering, and John Rosas on colors. The first issue opens with a scene set 150 miles above Russia in near-Earth space, an unidentified spacecraft is being fired upon by three American ships that are racing close behind in hot pursuit. Just as the unidentified craft is about to be shot down, the scene is enveloped in a flash of blinding light as each of the spacecrafts are simultaneously torn asunder. As the page is turned, we're treated to a splashy, widescreen double-page spread revealing that this brutal attack was an act by none other than Magneto, the mutant master of magnetism and former leader of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. This space-bound dogfight is strayed too close to his home, the orbital space station known as Asteroid M, which is what provoked his sudden attack. Magneto expresses that after decades of fighting with the X-Men, he's grown weary of the goings-on of mankind, and has chosen to live a life of self-exile on Asteroid M. As he's about to collect the helpless pilots, a woman cries out from the wreck of the unidentified craft. You can't send us back! It's you we came to find! Lord Magneto, we're mutants just like you! We've come to serve! To pledge our lives to the glorious cause! Those days are done, woman. That man is no more. In mercy's name, your people need you! Now more than ever! Can you abandon them? Can you deny your destiny? As the woman pleads with Magneto, we're presented with a large, dramatic shot of his face, which is over-rendered in the trademark Jim Lee fashion, as he grimaces down at her. It's a shot that dominates the page, owning nearly half of the space available in the composition, and which reaches beyond the constraints of conventional panel layouts. Magneto's raw, awesome power and overwhelming presence are on full display here as he's set up to return once more to the world of the X-Men. Next, we're introduced to the majority of the current X-Men roster with a big, splashy two-page spread. As an aside, it's worth mentioning that it was an extremely popular practice in the art-driven 90s comic scene to fill issues with two-page spreads and compositions that more closely resembled pinup art than traditional comic pages. 
While the more cynical explanation for such a practice is that it made the original art more appealing to collectors and thereby ensuring another stream of revenue for the artist, I honestly really appreciate this style of composition for the amount of spectacle it manages to bring to the books. Every time a character shows up or uses their powers, it feels like a major event in and of itself by sheer virtue of the way it's presented on the page. While most modern comics are obviously fairly toned down compared to the extremely 90s style comic storytelling found here, it's honestly pretty easy to see how the DNA of books like this live on in many of the comics published today. Getting back to the story, the scene shifts to the iconic Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters in Westchester, New York. Over the course of the next 10 or so pages, we're treated to a cleverly written sequence that introduces us to every current member of the X-Men, as well as their powers, as they work together to clear a training exercise. Professor X, Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Rogue, Iceman, Colossus, Archangel, Storm, Forge, Banshee, Wolverine, Psylocke, and Gambit. At first glance, it may seem like a bloated roster, but that's actually by design. You see, X-Men number one acts as the start of the team's blue and gold era, which saw the X-Men split into two teams across two titles, the other being the traditional uncanny X-Men title, starting with issue number 281 of that series. The first three issues of the adjectiveless X-Men series act as an opening salvo to this new era of X-Men, establishing the franchise's new direction. The rest of the issue is mostly lead-in to the inevitable clash between Magneto and the X-Men. We see Magneto finally convinced to return as leader of the Brotherhood when one of the human soldiers that he recovered from the destroyed ships kills the mutant woman he had talked with earlier. He returns to Earth in an attempt to bring a sunken Russian nuclear submarine to the surface in order to stockpile its missiles as a means of defense against America. The X-Men, who were tipped off by the government, arrive just in time to confront him. Magneto tries to explain that he intends only to use the missiles as a deterrent, but given his history as a villain, they refuse to believe him and a fight ensues. Magneto overpowers the X-Men and attempts to escape with the missiles as Rogue pursues him. She tries to talk him down, only to be fired upon by a US jet that was attempting to intercept Magneto. Seeing this as an attack against mutant kind, Magneto responds by detonating one of the nuclear missiles, enveloping the fighter jets in a cloud of atomic fire. The issue ends with Magneto returning to Asteroid M, where his surviving acolytes stoke the flames of his anger, provoking him to once again resume his crusade against mankind. This was an extremely solid first issue, and as I touched on earlier, it does a great job of establishing the new status quo for the X-Men. The team itself is in a sort of golden age, with more active members than ever before, and Magneto has returned to his roots as their greatest threat and rival. It was the beginning of a brave new era of X-Men comics, but it wasn't all smooth sailing from here. This was, after all, the early 1990s, and comics were in for an extremely rough period in the years ahead. The 1990s is an often maligned decade in comics history, but not without reason. While some people like to rag on the stories and artwork of that period, an opinion I honestly have a difficult time getting behind as I'm actually quite fond of most 90s comics. The real reason for that decade's status as the dark age of comics has less to do with the stories themselves and more to do with the people behind them. As I mentioned earlier, 1991's X-Men number one is the highest selling comic of all time, and nothing in the three decades since has even come close. But why is that? It's certainly not a matter of quality, as I can guarantee you that many, many better books than X-Men number one have been written since and will continue to be written far into the future. Truthfully, the reason for the drastically low sales of modern comics is no fault of their own, but it's actually due in no small part to X-Men number one and other 90s era books like it. 
Because you see, these are the books that nearly decimated the entirety of the American comic book industry. The late 80s and early 90s saw an absolute boom in the American collectibles market. 1992 saw a mid-grade condition copy of Detective Comics number 27, the first appearance of Batman, sold for a record-breaking $55,000, an amount previously unheard of for a comic book in that condition. Events like this became huge news and people all over the country went crazy for comics, under the impression that they'd be able to sell them to pay off their house or put their kids through college. The market, of course, took advantage of this. Major gimmicks like the death of Superman, collectible foil covers, or even a brand new X-Men number one, were printed in the millions and marketed as special collector's editions. People who had never read a comic in their lives flocked to stores in order to buy these books in bulk for the sole purpose of reselling them. Everyone thought that these books would make them millionaires and every single comic publisher at the time fed into it. This is what was known as the comics boom of the 90s, but of course every bubble has to eventually burst and it wasn't long before the bottom dropped out. All the people buying up these comics expected them to appreciate in value like Detective Comics 27, but they neglected to realize the one key difference between that and books like X-Men number one. It's actually rare. Scarcity is what makes those books so valuable, so the fact that all of those 90s books were getting print runs in the millions ensured they'd never be worth more than cover price. In fact, the most common place you'd find them today is in the back of the discount bins at any comic book store. Stores excessively overordered these comics, and once everyone realized they were worthless, ended up stuck with piles of stock they'd never sell. Comic shops, distributors, and even publishers all went bankrupt and disappeared within a matter of years. Even Marvel Comics filed for bankruptcy in 1996, which is what led to them auctioning off the film rights to most of their prized characters. Of course, there were certainly more factors involved than what I've gone into here, but it's no understatement to say that X-Men number one contributed to the collapse of the comic book industry. It truly was the end of one era and the beginning of another, in every sense of the phrase. So that's 1991's X-Men number one, a comic that both pushed the X-Men in a brand new direction and caused the collapse of the entire comics industry. What a legacy. Hopefully you enjoyed hearing my take on this iconic milestone in X-Men history. I definitely love to do more episodes, so let me know what you thought and what X-Men comics you'd like to see me cover next. In the meantime, thanks for tuning in to Uncanny Exposition. I'm your host, Harry Sheridan, signing off.